Uh, but go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to the book of Malachi. Okay, book of Malachi. If you're like, Malachi, where's that? Well, go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew being the first book of the New Testament. Turn left from Matthew. It'll be the first book you come to uh, if you do that. Malachi being the last book uh, in the Old Testament and where we'll spend the next seven weeks of our time uh, together. Uh, before we get to the text itself, just five verses here this morning, but before we get to the text, let me give you a little context around the book of Malachi, help you to understand some of the things that are uh, going on here, and as we move through the book, we'll uh, help to inform us on what exactly God is saying and what his heart and intent is for the people of Israel here. Uh, This is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, That's pretty obvious since the next book is Matthew and it's the New Testament. But it's also the last book in the Old Testament uh, from a chronological perspective. Uh, This is written after the exile, uh, most likely written around uh, 433 uh, B.C. At least that's what I believe. Uh, At this point in time, the Persians are ruling. Israel is not autonomous. Uh, They're not doing their own thing. They fall under a foreign government and what that government is calling them to. Uh, Interestingly enough, if you were with us about a year and a half ago when we went through the book of Nehemiah, uh, many commentators, as does myself, believe that Malachi finds itself right in the space uh, between Nehemiah 13.6 and 13.7 when Nehemiah had left Jerusalem and had gone back for a season, a time. And one of the reasons that I believe that and others believe it is a number of the things that Malachi is going to address are some of the very same issues uh, that show up in the last three, four chapters of Nehemiah. And then especially in chapter 13, when he goes back and he's rebuking them for not maintaining some of the things that they had promised to do back in chapter 10. Here's some things you got to know about Israel in this specific point in time. First of all, the post-exilic excitement is completely faded, if not evaporated. Uh, Jerusalem is simply a former shell of itself. Right? They find themselves under Persian rule. They're not autonomous. They won't find themselves to be autonomous for a long, long time. There's no Messiah, no Savior in sight. Uh, later in the book of Malachi, it tells us that pests and plagues uh, confront them and consume them. See, this is the context into which Malachi writes. It's not exactly a pretty picture. There's not exactly a lot of great things going on. If anything, there's a lot of negative, difficult, hard things that these people find in front of them. Here's what I believe the point of the book of Malachi is. I believe the point of what God is after is he's affirming, he's stating, he's restating, reaffirming his love of the people of Israel in the midst of their rebellion. Time and again, coming back to the fact that he loves them, that he's faithful to them, even in their faithlessness to him. And part of that is he's calling them to change, much like he did with the exile. And for a while, the city was destroyed, and they found themselves in a very difficult situation, but they moved very quickly back to a place of sin. And unfortunately, that's what's happened here in Malachi. So we see the immediate context... But I think there's something profound about where Malachi finds itself in the whole of the canon, the whole of the scriptures as well. Uh, The last book in the Old Testament, the last book penned in the Old Testament. And it's these words, listen very carefully, loved ones. It's these words that will be the final ringing, echoing words 
that are meant to sustain the nation of Israel for the next 400 years until God will speak again. And the point where God speaks again 400 years later is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this book really has, in its view, in its context, very much has the cross and Christ and, and the ultimate atonement in view. Because where God leaves us here, where he leaves Israel, when he speaks again, the cross is imminently in view. I found it interesting. I was actually reading this morning in Amos 8, and I found this so appropriate in light of this idea of these 400 years of silence. Here's what Amos 8.11 says. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And I think that is what comes right after Malachi's ministry. So in these next seven weeks, we've, we've titled the sermon series, Persistent Love, and a kind of the subtitle there, God's Pursuit of a Rebellious People, and God's Persistent Pursuit of a Rebellious People. In the same way that God was persistently pursuing you and I in our failures and shortcomings, uh, that's not something that's brand new. That's something that he's been doing for, well, honestly, for millennia. And it's part of what we see here in the book of Malachi. So let's do this. Let's read Malachi verses 1 through 5. Um, I'll tell you what, we don't do this very often. Why don't we stand as we read God's word? One of the ways that we honor the reading of the, of the, the word of the Lord. And a part of the reason we can do that, we're not doing two or three chapters at a time like we were in Acts. You'd be standing for 15 minutes, but this will only take about 30, 40 seconds. All right, but I'll read, and, and I'd encourage you to read along with me. Here's what we say. Uh, Malachi uh, says, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen? Amen. Why don't you go and have a seat, and we'll pray for our time together. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, God, we thank you for this word. I, God, I thank you for this very simple and yet what I have found in my own life this week, so, such a profound word. And your simple affirmation of your people, your restatement of your love for us. God, I pray this morning as we walk through this passage, I pray that you would allow us as a people, uh, both corporately and individually, to really sit in that, to to deep uh, in your love and your goodness to us. God, that we would revel in your majesty and your splendor and your glory and the fact that you would choose to set your love upon us. God, help us to just sit in this, to let it permeate the core of our being, all that we are, all that we be, all that we would do. God, not only for us, I pray for 
redemption. And I pray for Pastor Carlos Griego. God, I thank you for my brother in Christ and pray for him as he preaches this morning to that group of believers that you would be honored and lifted high in them. God, I pray that they would soak and, and steep in your great love for them. And God, as we walk through just these five very simple and yet I believe so profound verses here this morning, would you help us to really get it? Would you help us to really to understand what you're after? Lord Jesus, come and speak to us. God, speak to us in a way that no one else could, in a way that only you can. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5, title of the message. It's kind of like the title track, if you will, for the sermon series. We've entitled it Persistent Love. All right, persistent love, and really three things from the text this morning around God's persistent love for us. But before we get to that, look at verse 1 here uh, for just a moment. Here's what Malachi starts by saying. He says, the oracle of the word of the Lord. The oracle, that word oracle literally means it's a burden or to lift up. But it usually carries with it, or at least in this case, carries with it this sense of coming judgment. It's a warning. He's sounding the alarm for the people. He's making known, hey, judgment's coming. Now, when you hear an alarm go off, what do you do? You pay attention, you wake up, you you take notice of what's happening, right, man? Most of us, we set an alarm when we get up in the morning and we hate it, okay? Uh, this isn't one of those alarms. This is a warning. And by lifting up his voice here, Malachi begins to warn the people. Now notice verse 2. If you don't have these first four words underlined, highlighted, circled, or all three, you might want to change that right now. Here's what he says. I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. See, the first thing about persistent love is we see God's love professed. I mean, in context, isn't that awesome? Warning, judgment, pay attention, gotta get this. And then the first thing out of God's mouth is, I have loved you. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that fantastic? That before God ever gets to the hard word, before he ever gets to the rebuke, before he ever gets to the difficult things, he's like, hey, let's just make sure we're clear about something right up front. I have loved you. I've loved you. This is important for two reasons. It's probably, well, it's probably important for more than two reasons, but two reasons specific to uh, the text and our time together this morning. Uh, The first is this, is that in verses two through five, the immediate focus of the passage is God's love for Israel. Now, sometimes, a lot of times, we'll read passages uh, like this or this passage itself, and we're gonna, we get hung up on the whole beginning of verse 3, this whole Esau I've hated thing, and we'll get to that 2,000-pound gorilla in a few moments, okay? And it's easy to get hung up on that, but even that statement will serve to amplify the point of God's love for Israel. That is the focus That is what God is after, and everything in these verses, and really everything in the whole of this book, will serve that point. God professing his love. There's a second reason this is so important, is that the rest of the book, really after verse 2, the rest of the book is going to center around God's judgment and admonishment of Israel. And so similar to what we saw with Adam and Eve in the garden, remember Adam and Eve sinned and they fell? And before God ever said anything to them, before he ever cursed them, what did he do? Well, he cursed the serpent directly, but indirectly, what was he doing? 
He was telling Adam and Eve, listen, I've made provision. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to write this. I'm going to see this thing through. I understand that you blew it. I understand that you have failed me miserably. In fact, I knew from the beginning that was the very thing that you were going to do. However, right, however, we're going to make it happen. We're going to see it through. So God's love professed in the admonishment, in the judgment, in the correction. Let me just speak into that here for a moment. I think that's important for us to understand that God's love for us should not be questioned in his discipline or correction of us. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's just the opposite. I think God's love is affirmed in the discipline and the correction and the admonishment in our lives. In fact, if you were to flip over, do this real quick, flip over to Hebrews 12. I want to read a few verses there. Hebrews, uh, towards the back end of the New Testament, Hebrews 12. I'm going to start in verse 5. Here's what the author of Hebrews tells us uh, with respect to discipline and God's love for us. He says this, he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He's like, listen, I'm not exhorting you as some random people. I'm addressing you as beloved children. That's how I'm coming at you, and that's, that's why I'm doing this. And then he quotes from uh, Proverbs 3 here. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he tells me. What's that next word? The Lord disciplines the one he loves. When God disciplines you, it means he loves you. You should thank him for that. You should be appreciative of that. It's God demonstrating his love for you. The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then the author of Hebrews goes on. He tells us this. It is for discipline that you have to endure, God, uh, is treating you as sons. For what son is there who, whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, this is kind of a hard word, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see what God's saying? God's saying, hey, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're not being disciplined by me, you should be concerned you should be worried. If you don't feel conviction, if you don't feel me pressing in, if you, if, if you feel free to live in sin, then it's more like an illegitimate child. Now, I would just tell you as an applicational note for all parents in the room, you don't love your children by not disciplining them. You do them no favors. And according to the scriptures, you're essentially treating them as illegitimate children and not sons or daughters when you choose not to discipline them. I don't care what society tells you. I'm telling you what God is telling you discipline your children. Verse 9 goes on and says this, says, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Agreed? Right? Agreed. It's never fun. But later... Right, big picture in view, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, with God, part of what's going to happen in Malachi is that very principle. Because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. Because I care for you, I'm going to correct you. So we look at this phrase, I have loved you. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Why have? Why past tense? What changed? Well, nothing actually changed. But the Hebrew there, it's not simply past tense. It's me- past tense. It's meant to indicate, I've loved you in the past. 
all the way up to the present and will continue to love you into the future. It's a full, comprehensive, complete love. It's not just something that's tied to our past. It's not something that's just tied to this moment. But it's continual. Right? The larger point here is that God's love is not conditional. It's not based upon whether or not you and I are good people or whether or not we do what God tells us to do or don't or whether we fail or succeed in those things. And as we move through Malachi, he's going to lay out a number of ways in which God's love for them is not conditioned upon their success or their failure, but it's conditioned upon God's faithful love and care of them and God choosing to set his love upon them. Now that truth is not specific only to Malachi, right? We've seen that in a number of places. We see that in Hosea. Remember the prophet that was told to go and marry a prostitute to depict the relationship of Israel and God and to just show how unfaithful they were? Repeatedly in Hosea, we see this, this truth that God's love is not conditioned upon our success or failure. Deuteronomy 7, right? God's choosing of Israel. Here's what he says. God did not choose you not because, because you were large or because of your size, but essentially God chose you because of God, because of his character, because of his faithfulness. Isaiah 43 talks about God choosing or giving others as a ransom for us. Well, specifically Israel has nothing to do with you and I, has nothing to do with the nation of Israel, but because, as God says, you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Okay, why is this so important? Why these four words? Why taking so long to unpack all of these things? Here's why. Because the very basis of our salvation and this reality, it's tied to all of this. If your salvation, if my salvation, if, if the way in which you and I come before God and it's based upon, it's founded upon whether or not you and I are successful or we fail, whether it's, it, it's precipitated upon our performance, it means that I can somehow put myself in greater favor or in less favor with God. And it's simply not true. It's simply not found in the scriptures. God's love for us is not conditioned upon our behavior. It's not conditioned upon our failure or success. It's conditioned upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. That and that alone. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that in this, in total righteousness, right? If, let, let's pretend for a moment that you could live in total righteousness. Right? The natural consequences of that would certainly be a more fruitful and productive life. There'll be greater rewards in eternity, things of that nature. But it puts you in no greater favor with God. If you walked out of here and you didn't sin from now to the moment that you die, God is not more impressed with you. God does not love you more. God does not think more highly of you than he does of anyone else. Your, your, your status and your favor with God does not change. Now, yes, there's certainly consequences, whether positive or negative for that. But God's favor or the lack thereof of that does not move in accordance to whether or not you are walking faithfully with him or whether you've failed miserably. And of course, the inverse of that is true. And I think that's where there's really a lot of comfort for us, right? Um, okay, church is a great place to be honest. How many people failed some way this week? Anyone struggle with that? Yeah, I, I had some failure in my life this week. I have failure in my life every week. See, so what I'm comforted by is not so much that if I could live in total righteousness, okay, that one's maybe not as comforting, but see, the other side of that, there's a lot of comfort. Because I could go out and fail miserably. You know what God's saying? I don't think any less of you. My love for you has not changed. I mean, that's the whole context of the book of Malachi. They have screwed up miserably. And what does he start with? I have loved you. Certainly not based upon their performance. They've performed miserably. 
And so from the word go, what God is getting at is, no, no, my, my love for you is not tied to, it's not conditioned upon your performance. See, what Malachi is doing here is he's preaching the gospel. That's what's happening here. 400 years before Jesus ever showed up. No, he's not preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's not preaching the gospel in the way that you and I have come to know it in its fullness or its entirety. But you're crazy if you don't think that conceptually the gospel is not playing itself out here. See, what God is saying is, I have loved you not, listen very carefully, not because of you. God is essentially saying, I have loved you in spite of you. That's what he's really saying here. And see, the reality is, right, the reality is, um, when we think about how this applies to our life, how this begins to play out, what this means for us, is that for far too many believers, far too many believers, we feel that we have to work, we have to earn, we have to merit, I have to try harder, I operate out of some kind of fear in order to appease God. And God's saying, no, 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 you don't get it. I have loved you. Let the truth of that just soak down into the depths of your soul, loved ones. You don't have to appease God. You're not going to merit greater favor by being good. You're not going to find um, less favor because you, because you failed. It's defined, it's defined by Jesus and his work. See, the gospel moves us to the place where we don't serve out of fear or duty, but out of gratitude and appreciation because of all that God has done. It's not defined by what I do. It's defined by what Christ has done for me. And this God's love professed, God's love professed to us here. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, Some of you, some of you are here today and you so desperately need to hear those words. Because the truth is, if you're honest, when you heard me read it or you've heard me say it a couple of times, you're like, okay, that sounds good. I know that that's in there. That's not true of me. There's no way that God could really love me, Mike. You don't know what my week has looked like. You don't know what's gone on the last number of months. You don't know the facade I've put on. You don't know the mask that I'm wearing. Buried under the burden and the weight and the guilt and the shame of whatever's going on in your life. And I'm just telling you, let me speak the truth of God into your life right now. What God wants to say to each and every person in this room in this moment right now is this. I have loved you. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So some of you, some of you, you just, you got to grip onto that with everything that you possibly can because that's the truth. Okay. That's God's truth. That's what it says. I mean, does it say something different in your Bible? Does it say I've only kind of loved you in some translation? That's wrong, by the way, if that's what it, that's what it says. All right. That's what it says. I've loved you. I've loved you. God's love professed to us. Hold on to that. Notice then, the second item we see here in verses 2 through 4, really the bulk of the text. I just wrote this down, God's love proved. God's love is proved. I have loved you, says the Lord, right? God professes this faithful covenant love to Israel. And uh, check out their response, not exactly um, the uh, highlight or the best way in how to respond. Here's what they say. But you say, how have you loved us? Now this... (laughs) That's a bad response, all right? That's like the worst response possible. It could be that that was their actual response. It could be that Malachi is simply anticipating that response. We don't know for sure. Either way, that's what ended up in the scriptures. That's a bad response. 
Uh, truthfully, I just look at this, I'm like, man, that's a really bad way to ruin a great moment. Right? You know what I'm saying? Gee, gee, God, God's saying, I have loved you. Really? Prove it. Now, can you think of any human relationship where that response goes over in any form or fashion at all? I mean, that's like a total train. Like, imagine like, my wife sitting right here. Imagine I were to come to my wife and I were to say, I have loved you. Please don't even respond because I don't want to hear you say prove it. All right? <laughs> but what, what happens? Just imagine for a moment, Becky, I have loved you. And she goes, how have you loved me? What happens inside of most people at that moment? Right, yeah, yeah, meow, okay. Okay, you know what, never mind. I don't love you. I'm kind of bugged at you right now. I'm pretty put off, actually. And right, we praise God that he's not fickle like you and I. Because God, in, in that, okay, in that moment, in that moment, God can be like, you know, forget it, lightning bolt, bam, we're gonna start over. He could have. I, I sometimes I wonder if he was close, like if he was closer than we thought to doing that. But he doesn't, does he? In fact, look at what he says. I mean, the, the, his response is one of the most gracious, patient, compassionate responses you could find anywhere in the scriptures. Because what they're saying, here's what they're saying. They are denying and denouncing his love. They're denying and denouncing his covenant. They're denying and denouncing his choosing of them. They're denying and denouncing what we see in Lamentations 3, that his compassions never fail them. They're saying, we're not really seeing that. I don't believe that. I don't think that's really happening. And so look at, look at what God goes on to say. He starts by asking this question, is not Esau Jacob's brother? You're like, what? Well, let me just read a little further. Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And then he goes on and talks about how he's going to essentially lay waste to Esau. Edom, we see later, same, uh, same people group there, that they're going to be shattered, that they may try to rebuild, but it's not going to happen for them. They're going to be called the wicked country, and they're going to be called the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And you're going, okay, Mike, I, I, I saw the whole God's love professed thing. I'm not sure that I'm seeing God's love proved here. Let me just press into your heart and my heart here for a moment, and then we'll explain because the truth is the truth is some of you heard those words I have loved you says the Lord and if you're honest with yourself if you're really honest with yourself what you wanted to say is what Israel said how how have you loved me how have you loved us you want to say, God, where, where have you really been? I don't, I don't know where you've been. I don't know how you've proven yourself to love. I, I don't, I'm not seeing it. Maybe for some of you, for some of you, what you want to say is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 59. You want to say, God, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold, darkness. Ever been there? We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. See, some of you, some of you, you're like, no, I, I know how they say that. I know how they arrive at that place, because if I'm honest in my heart of hearts, that's where I'm at too. That's what some of you want to say. 
And in fairness, when you consider the context of where these people find themselves, it's after the exile. Jerusalem's a mess. There's no Messiah. You've got some other country ruling you. Things don't exactly look great from Israel's perspective. But the danger, right, the dangerous thinking is that God's love is affirmed or denied in our current circumstances. Don't we keep seeing this principle show up in the scriptures? Right? God's love for us is affirmed or denied based on whether or not life is good or bad, and yet that's just not true. It's just not true. And so what we see God do is we see God reminding them of his love for them and begins to give evidence of it. Now, he doesn't, he, 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 right, he doesn't reject them entirely in this. In fact, he does just the opposite. But he is very firm in his response to them. And so that's why he goes on and he poses this question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Now, here's what you got to understand. What you got to understand is that Esau was the older brother. And in Jewish understanding, in Jewish culture, the oldest brother, firstborn male, man, that was the place to be. All of the blessing, all of the birthright. In fact, two-thirds of the total inheritance went to the firstborn son. Everyone else split the remaining third. And all the oldest brothers in the room are going, hey, can we get back to that? That sounds pretty good, right? I'm an oldest, I'm an oldest son. I'm like, let's get back to that. I've tried telling my parents that it's biblical, but they don't really listen to me uh, in respect to that. All right? But see, all of the blessing, all of the benefit, all of it would have gone to Esau. And so part of what God is saying is he's like, wait, wait, wait. Just so we're clear, you're not the firstborn, right? That's That's what he's saying to them. Let's just, let's, just, let's just begin to talk about the reality of the context and the circumstance that you find yourself in. You, you, you're not the one who's supposed to get everything. And then he says this at the end of verse 2 and beginning of chapter, or verse 3. Yet I have loved Jacob. And then here's the statement that almost everyone gets hung up on and we miss everything that's going on. But Esau I have hated. Let me just say a couple things about this. Let's address this issue right here, right now. Two things you got to know about this statement, Esau, I've hated. Here's the first. This is clearly covenant language. Okay, it's covenant language. So what God is saying is he's saying, I chose one. And of course, by implication, you have to reject the other. I I made a covenant, right? When I I stood up and I made a covenant with my wife that I was going to be faithful with her to the end of my days, what did I, by implication, do to every other woman? Rejected! Okay? Nope. And she did the same. That's really the important part. Okay? You rejected all other men. You can't leave. All right? That was really what I was getting to. All right? Um, that's, that's what happens in a covenant. Here's the second thing you've got to understand. In the same way that God's love was not conditioned upon their performance or their failure, his hate is not conditioned or rejection is not conditioned upon performance or failure. And so God didn't look at Esau or eventually Edom and go, you know what, y'all are lame. I want nothing to do with you. Because he would have looked at every nation and said that if it was based solely on performance. What he did was, he said, I have chosen to set my love on this nation who's going to be a kingdom of priests that Exodus 19 tells us, that Isaiah 49 says you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. And what I did with Esau or Edom and all other nations is I put you in the other position, which is not outside of my covenant love, You just don't have the privilege of being the messenger. That's what he's saying here. 
Furthermore, I think it's important for us to understand because we see this and we go, but Mike, he says he hated Esau. Well, he's saying he rejected Esau and he chose Israel. Again, the emphasis is God's love for Israel. That's the point of what he's after here. And he's proving it now. He's proving his love to Israel by saying, I chose you. You weren't even the best choice in your own family. Furthermore, this whole issue of Esau I've hated, let's just be clear about a couple things historically. That group of people, they were really, really good at sinning. I mean, like all world sinful. So if God chose to hate them simply based upon the way in which they responded to God, it would be completely justified. See, the reality is, is you and I are no different. If we're honest with ourselves, the position that you and I, if left to ourselves, absent of God's mercy, we would not find ourselves in the position of Israel. We would find ourselves in the position of Esau or Edom. That God should punish us. And we would get exactly what we deserved. Now what happens for so many people is they look at this statement and they're shocked. Now I agree, the end of verse 2 and beginning of verse 3 is a shocking statement. But what is shocking is not that God hated Esau. What is shocking is that he would choose to love Jacob. That is what is shocking. That God would choose to love a wicked, rebellious group of people and be faithful to them as they continue to rebel against him. Now you might hear that and be like, well, Mike, uh, that's it's pretty harsh. No, no, it's not harsh. The problem is you and I don't see sin the way that God sees sin. Because when we see sin the way that God sees sin, we get away from the God. How dare you say? How dare you say that you would hate a group of people? Because I think what God would come back and say, no, no, how dare you diminish the death of my son on the cross? How dare you diminish how much, how, how steep the price was? How dare you look so casually and apathetically and indifferently at sin that ultimately put my son on the cross in your and my place? I think that's what God would say. And so I'll give you that the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3 is shocking. But I think it has nothing to do with Esau. I think it has everything to do with Jacob. See, what God is really saying, right? again, the focus is God's love. Here's what he's telling them. He's saying, I put you into the lineage of the Messiah. Don't you see what I've done for you? I moved the one who should have been in that lineage out of it. And I placed them in the place where I put all other nations. They're not outside God's covenant love. They just find themselves in a different position. He's saying, listen, Esau was older. He had the birthright. He had the inheritance. He had the blessing. He had the privilege. And Israel, here's what I want you to know. I'm giving you a privilege that was never yours to begin with. And I'm continuing to extend that privilege to you even though you continue to abuse uh, and misuse uh, all of the grace that I've given to you. And then he goes, really what we see at the end of verse 3 and verse 4 is he goes, listen, let me just point out to you, not only did I give you something that you didn't deserve, but I'm not giving you what you do deserve. And he references the destruction of Edom. He goes, look at how poor it's gone for them and they've been rebellious. Israel, you've been no different. You have been equally rebellious. You have equally walked away from what I've called you to do. And yet I haven't treated you the way that I've treated them. See, the point is, and the emphasis is not that God hates Esau. He's proving his great and faithful and continual and unconditional love to Israel. See, he's really answering their question. How have you loved us? 
here's how. I gave you everything you didn't deserve and I'm not giving you anything of what you do deserve. Isn't that awesome? Now let me ask you this. Because that's fun and all to talk about historically what's happening and what God is doing, but let's press this into our own lives here for a moment. Begin to answer this question in your own heart of hearts. How has God proved his love for you in your life? How has God proved his love for you in your own life? Just begin to think about that for a moment. Begin to think about how God has moved and worked in your own life. I mean, you're here. Think about that breath you just took. Think about the millions upon millions of breaths that come before that. You didn't deserve or you weren't owed any of those, the one you're taking right now. It's not owed to you. You may breathe your last this afternoon. Completely fair. The fact that God would choose to set his love upon you, at the very least have an interest in spiritual things, if not be a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ, having an eternal hope. The fact that God has seen you through. Think of all the things that God has seen you through in your lifetime, loved one. Think of his continued, repeated faithfulness to you. What struggle or trial are you coming out of that you never thought you could get out of? What valley did you see no way of escape and then suddenly there was the light and you were out of it? What hardship has God seen you through? We go on and on and on. Started thinking about this in my own life. And what was shocking to me wasn't wasn't the items that came to me, but it was the quickness at which different items in my life came to me. And then what was really, really challenging was how quickly I forget about those things. How quickly we forget the incredible faithfulness of God. I was thinking about uh, in 2006, Becky and I, we'd been living in Europe for three years and we moved back uh, to the U.S. We'd been married three years, had no furniture, no vehicles, no home. We had pretty much nothing except like dishes and a couple of other random household things. If you remember, 06, like real estate stuff wasn't exactly cheap. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, we moved back to Flagstaff, Arizona. I mean, townhouses, townhouses going off at 300000 a pop. Becky was pregnant with twins. Uh, I just started a new job. Just started going to seminary, right? We just moved halfway around the world. And we look back at that time and we laugh. We're like, we don't get it, man. We don't get how God saw us through. And yet some of our famous, most, most cherished memories come out of that season. I mean, God's faithfulness was so evident, so evident in that. I was thinking back to this time about two years ago. We're putting our house on the market, packing up all of our belongings, saying goodbye to everyone that we knew and getting ready to move here. And that was a leap. That was a leap for us. We didn't know how y'all would respond. We didn't know how we'd respond. We were terrified about how our kids were going to respond. And yet, man, like, it's, it's, been, it's been aces. It's just been aces. And the truth is, I could tell stories for weeks. I could tell stories for weeks about God's love, God's faithfulness, how he's moved and worked. But my sense is you could probably do the same. You could probably begin to tell stories for weeks as well. See, but the reality, right? God's, lo- God's professing his love, and now he's proving his love. And he's saying, listen, this is what you deserved. <laughs> and yet this is what I gave you. Here's what I want to do before we... We've got to deal with verse 5, but I, w- I want to take a moment, and I want you to just... I'm, I'm going to just stand up here in silence, and I'm going to let you press in for a moment. 
Because I think there's something really healthy to remember uh, all the ways that God has been faithful to us. So just take out a, a pen, piece of paper. If you've got a, a, an iPad or an iPhone, just jot some notes down there. Just begin to, just begin to jot down ways that God has been faithful, faithful to you. Begin, begin to reflect upon how God has proven his love to you. Uh, much like stones of remembrance uh, back in Joshua 4. Just begin to document all the ways that God has seen you through. Just do this here for the next couple moments. What failure has he lifted you from? What provision did he make? What grace did he give? What undeserved blessing fell upon you? Begin to be overwhelmed by all that God has done for you. God's love professed. God's love proved. Finally, this. God's love proclaimed. In verse 5, Malachi says this. It says, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say. Now see, we're going to say something. Here's what we're going to say. We're going to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. I'll show two things down briefly. God's love proclaimed, first of all, this, that great is the Lord. I'm talking about the character, the nature, the being of God. That's part of what we proclaim. That's part of what we make known. This should certainly, hurt. This should certainly be happening in our worship of God, both in a couple of moments here when we engage this corporately and in our own lives. We see this everywhere in the scriptures, right? Great is the Lord, mighty is the Lord, worthy is the Lord. What God is great like our God. There's no God like our God. Not only that we would say that, but from our heart of hearts where we would believe that. And then they say this, it's not only great is the Lord, but great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And God is great everywhere. God is great everywhere. They have to understand in the ancient Near East, they, they had a huge thing with localized gods. They believed that gods were local so what God is saying is, listen, I, I know y'all think and operate this way, that I'm the God of this country or this people or this place. No, no, I'm the God of every people. I'm the God of every place. I'm the God of all things. There's nothing that holds me, nothing that restrains me. I am great, and I am great everywhere. Now, as God professes his love and God proves his love, God does that. But God's love proclaimed, see, that's our response to what God has done. That, that's, that's how we uh, come in line with what God is calling us to. And so that's what we're going to do right now. In fact, I'd encourage you right now just to close your eyes and let's just be silent before the Lord for a moment. And uh, then we'll close with some extended uh, worship through song. But just close your eyes right now between yourself and the Lord. I'm going to ask him, God, how can I rightly proclaim your love? 
God, how can I rightly respond to all that you've done? God, help me to be reminded of the greatness of your love, that it's not conditioned upon my performance. It doesn't, it's not conditioned upon my behavior. It doesn't wax and wane depending on whether or not I, I, I've been good or bad. Thank God for the cross. Thank Jesus for his sacrifice. Thank God for his relentless pursuit of a rebellious individual.